Can there be such a thing as a good serial killer? This is the question posed by the popular Showtime series Dexter, based on, the, on Jeff Lindsay's series of novels that began with Darkly Dreaming Dexter. One of Dexter Morgan's earliest memories, the main character of the show, was witnessing the brutal murder of his mother when he was just a few years old. It was a few days before he was found, sitting in pools of his mother's blood, crying. He was adopted by the police officer who handled his mother's case, so when he started to exhibit some of the classic early serial killer behavior in his youth, such as killing small animals from the neighborhood, his father came up with a plan, a code that he hoped would channel his murderous tendencies and keep him from getting caught. The premise assumes, as Dexter and his father did, that in some cases, what happens to us is so traumatic that there is no changing our behavior. Dexter calls his urge to kill his dark passenger, this part of him that needs to kill that was born in him when he first saw death, when he was, as he calls it, baptized in blood. And his urges become overwhelming. He feels helpless to stop them. He feels the need of his dark passenger build within him until it is released when he kills. The code that his father teaches him includes many ways in which he safeguards himself from getting caught, but most importantly, it requires that all those murdered by Dexter be properly vetted as murderers themselves. He kills those killers who have slipped through the cracks of the justice system, who manage to get away with murder. He often shows his victims pictures of those they have killed as explanation for why they will die. And season after season, we find him in situation after situation that asks the question over and over again, is he good or evil? Was he just too broken by the horrible experience of witnessing his mother's death at some an impressionable age that he cannot be good? Is there, nothing, is there truly nothing he can do to stop his need to murder? And is it then okay, as long as he sticks to his code and only kills people who would kill other innocent people, thereby actually saving more lives than he takes? Can there be such a thing as a good serial killer? Now, while I disagree with the foundational premise that there are traumatic events that make it impossible to change our behaviors, it is this complicated notion of good and evil that appeals to me about Dexter. It's not a black and white issue. Dexter lives in a gray area an area where the line between good and evil is blurry, and he dances on it, back and forth over the line. In a world where we so desperately try to create a thick, clear line between good and evil, 
I find this gray area quite refreshing. Our culture is built on the notion that good and evil are opposing forces that do not coexist. We are one or the other. This allows us to see ourselves as the us in the us versus them dichotomy. They are the bad ones so that we can feel as though we are the good ones. We see this notion playing out throughout our world these days. And one strong theory for why this problematic dichotomy is so alive in our modern U.S. culture is that it is a strong theme in the Hebrew scriptures that are called in our Christian communities the Old Testament. The people who were the writers and main characters of many of these stories lived in a very harsh world. In the ancient Near East, you lived in constant fear of being conquered by neighboring armies. That is, when you weren't living under the rule of them, or in exile, in slavery. The God of the Israelites was therefore one that could keep the terror and destruction at bay. There's passage after passage describing how their God can bind up the evil forces and keep their people safe. Leviathan, the great sea monster, is confined in order to protect God's chosen people. Light is created in the darkness and chaos, and the light is good. And this continues to be the way in which our world is understood by so many. And it is comforting to that little voice inside us that wonders whether we are good enough. For if we understand good and evil to be opposing forces, then we can rest assured that we are on the side of good whenever we encounter people who we can claim are more evil than we are. However, just as we know life is not quite as simple as good versus evil, The origin of the stories of the Hebrew Bible are not that simple either. While the ancient Israelites, who were followers of Yahweh, saw their storm god as one who kept the evil forces away from them, there were other understandings of the gods of that time that, of course, have all been rolled into one in our modern readings of the scriptures in order for it to make sense with doctrine. In Aramaic, a language that was used by many of the people of the ancient Near East and was most likely the language used by the man we've come to know as Jesus of Nazareth, the word for God, Allaha, means the one with no opposite. In this understanding of the holy, God is that which is good, and there is no such thing as a force that is pure evil. In the beginning of our own faith tradition in the United States, in a time when the scriptures were being interpreted to describe all of humanity as depraved, the radical notion that people were more good than evil was what most separated our spiritual ancestors from the religious elite of their time. 
ministers in the colonial Near East who would be called Unitarians as a derogatory term by their peers, began preaching that humanity was capable of great things and that our intellect and free will were gifts from God to be used for the betterment of our lives and the world. Today, we might describe this notion as the seeds of our understanding that there is a spark of the holy in each one of us that is fed by our coming together in community. For much of our history, what has made this faith tradition distinct has been our belief in the goodness of humanity. For our spiritual ancestors to break free of the notion that humanity was morally corrupt was a radical and costly thing. Many ministers lost their churches. Much controversy arose over who was right, the Calvinists arguing that humanity was depraved or the Unitarians. Churches were split. Epic battles were fought over who owned the congregation's silver. And still, in our modern congregations, we sometimes struggle with our first principle, the one that has such clear roots in this period of our history that says that we affirm and promote the inherent worth and dignity of every person. It was also in this period when many of the songs we are hearing today were being sung by the people who were seen as the most depraved at that time. That notion of good versus evil, of some of us being better than others, had been foundational to the horrible and pervasive slave trade. And it would be the Unitarian notion of the goodness of all of humanity that would begin to break down our ability to be a part of such an awful practice. In the writings of the ministers who we now come to revere as abolitionists, we can see that it was a struggle to grapple with the ways in which their culture and the lives of their slaveholding congregants didn't make sense with their understanding of their faith. And it is this notion of the divinity within all humanity that fuels much of our justice work today. When we stand with our brothers and sisters who are immigrants, who are systematically treated as invisible and less than, it is because we know that all people are worthy. When we feed people who are without homes in Tulsa each month as a congregation, when we serve them food and treat them with kindness, it is because we know that everyone deserves love. As a people of faith, we choose to stand on the side of love. While we claim the radical message of our faith, that all people should be treated with love and compassion. We arise and speak out against evil forces as we have come to understand them in our society. Systems of oppression that frustrate life and limit the fulfillment of humanity. Many among us come to this faith or remain in this faith of our birth 
because we connect deeply with the notion that all people are worthy. And that connection often is fueled by experiences of being treated as less than worthy, as other, as not good enough. Knowing how that feels, we empathize with those who are oppressed. We see ourselves on the side of the marginalized. And yet, many of us benefit from those systems of oppression. Most of us, in some direct or indirect way, have reached where we are today, at least in part because of an environment that has offered us opportunities and support. Yes, we had to work hard and show talent to reach our goals. And we know that we didn't do it alone. We know that there are millions of ways in which we are helped that we might have too easily taken for granted. We are not fully on the side of the marginalized or the oppressors. It's just not that simple. And while it is the notion of the worth of all humanity that may have drawn so many of us here, we still struggle with extending that notion completely. It's all well and good to believe that all people are worthy and loved, but it's a whole different thing to actually live our lives, lives as if that's true. We struggle to see the worth in those people who are so caught up in the systems of evil that we have a hard time seeing that divine spark in them. If we actually lived as if our first principle was true, we would not be able to rejoice in the death of any human, no matter how much they have done that we do not agree with, regardless of whether we agree that the right thing for the world is that they die. And for some of us, we struggle to truly extend this notion to ourselves, having internalized that we are not good enough. If we actually lived as if our first principle was true, we would have to care for ourselves as deeply as we care for those around us and be as compassionate with ourselves when we mess up as we would with others. Affirming the worth of all people doesn't mean that we don't hold people accountable for their actions, though. It just calls us to be human in how we do it and to affirm others' humanities in how we do it. It reminds us that we all have the same capacity for good and evil churning within us, and it pushes us to rise above the forces of evil, to see the ways that they play out in, the li- in our lives and choose love and compassion over and over again. Now, if you're still struggling with the question that I so provocatively posed in my focus column this month, in part just to see who was reading it, you'll have to wait until next week to hear a fuller explanation of how we extend this notion to those people who have been so consumed by the evil forces in our universe that they have been integral parts of major destruction of much of humanity. For now, let us remember that only love can overcome the evil and hate in this world. 
It was the love of humanity creeping into the theology that led many of our Unitarian spiritual ancestors to fight to abolish the evil of slavery. And it will be the love of humanity that we show in our lifetime that will continue to shift our course ever more towards justice. For, as in the words of one of our most revered abolitionist ministers, who was later quoted by Martin Luther King Jr., Theodore Parker wrote, The arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And it bends because, and these are my words now, it bends because we keep leading it in the direction of love. We keep showing light in the face of fear and hope in the face of despair. Now, to return to my opening question, can there be such a thing as a good serial killer? The whole question presuming that there is such a good thing, such a thing as a good person and a bad person, and that you must be one or the other. The most intriguing part of the story of Dexter Morgan that keeps me coming back season after season is that he shows me in no uncertain terms that it's not that simple. And he is an extreme example of the inner battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil within us all. His choices on either side may be more blatant than ours might be, but he shows me that we make choices on either side in more subtle ways all the time. He shows that even in people who've been so traumatized that they feel they must bring destruction to the world. Their pain and hurt can be channeled when someone shows them love and when they are in touch with that divine spark within them that urges them towards good. So I reject the entire question. I say there is such a thing as people who are grappling with their own goodness in the face of the pain that they aren't sure how to heal. There is such a thing as people who battle their own tendency to choose the easy way over the way that uplifts humanity. There is such a thing as people who've been treated as less than worthy for so much of their lives that they sometimes aren't sure if they are worthy. These people are called people, humans. We are not what has happened to us, nor are we what we do with the pain within us. What matters is not whether we've ever given in to the evil forces that are alive in this world and alive within ourselves. What matters is whether we are concerned with our own wholeness, whether we are healing our wounds so that we can choose life and love more easily and see the goodness within ourselves and each other more fully. What matters is whether we can be agents of peace in our communities and within ourselves. Whether we can stop battling the parts of ourselves that are broken so that we can love those parts into healing. What matters is how we handle the truth that we are all capable of great good and great evil and that all of us make choices every day towards one or the other. What matters is how we handle the truth that our community messes up all of the time 
and is still good at its core because it continues to try to do better. What matters is whether we can love ourselves enough to keep making better choices, ones that support the fulfillment of all life. So do we choose to villainize those who have made mistakes, including ourselves, or to try to seek understanding and forgiveness with them? Do we define people by the sum of their deeds or embrace them for being flawed humans and celebrate those who are truly trying to grow in the direction of their own goodness? Do we choose compassion or judgment? Which one do you think is the most effective? But more importantly, which one aligns with the truths we value as a faith? Do we just pay lip service to the goodness of all humanity, or do we actually live out this radical truth that our spiritual ancestors fought for? And if we do live it out, how might the world change? I believe that if we are truly to live our lives hearing this call to action that is our first principle, we might offer a path to healing to those who have been so wounded in their lives that they struggle with a desire to lash out, spreading their overwhelming pain to those around them. By affirming the spark of the divine within even those who have harmed us, they may see their own spark in a way that could change their trajectory. By connecting more deeply to the goodness and love that shines within us and within this faith community, we are seeking more wholeness. And we are offering more wholeness to the world. This broken world full of broken people needs wholeness desperately. And it is up to us to share this message of wholeness and peace in the face of an us-versus-them mentality. It is up to us to say that love has no side, but it is everywhere, available to all people. And it is our job to embody that truth by sharing our love with all people, by sharing our compassion with those who truly need it, by sharing our divine sparks, with those who've lost touch with their own. Because then, the fire of hope and love grows ever stronger and brighter in this world. Then, the beloved community is at hand. May it be so. And amen.